Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. How quickly should England's lockdown be eased after the most vulnerable have been vaccinated? Some senior Conservatives believe as quickly as possible. I think once you've vaccinated certainly the top nine groups and you've reduced 99% of the risk of death and you've reduced the level of hospitalisation by 80%, you'd struggle to make an argument for having any restrictions in place at all. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at how the Johnson government plans to end lockdown after the first rounds of vaccinations are complete in the middle of February. When will schools, shops and leisure facilities open again? Joining me to discuss is special guest Mark Harper, the Conservative MP and chair of the COVID Recovery Group. And later, I'll be looking at Scotland and why Boris Johnson made a trip north of the border this week to do his bit to talk up the union. But is it really in trouble? Our Scotland correspondent Muir Dickey joins us, along with special guest Nicola McEwen from the University of Edinburgh. So let's dive straight into the main topic of the week. The UK hit an appalling milestone this week in its battle against coronavirus. 100,000 deaths. There's been much reflection on why the state and the government let the death toll rise so high, especially as 60,000 of those deaths occurred since November. Boris Johnson has personally apologised and says he takes full responsibility. But the Prime Minister was eager to put forward some better news, setting out a roadmap for exiting lockdown. The process will begin on February the 15th with a review into all the data into the effectiveness of the vaccine, the state of the health service, deaths and infections. A week later, the results will be published and three weeks after that, on March the 8th, schools are due to reopen. Some Conservative MPs, however, want more detail and potentially a faster reopening, fearful of the effects on children's education and the economy. The COVID recovery group of Conservative MPs has been the most influential caucus in shaping government policy on lockdowns, and I'm delighted to be joined by Chair Mark Harper. Mark, welcome to Payne's Politics. Thanks very much, Seb. So let's just begin with Boris Johnson's roadmap for exiting the measures. What did you make of it? Because this is something your group's been calling for for some time. Yes, we have. I mean, I was disappointed he's not going to publish it until the 22nd of February, because I would have rather have a draft published now that we could have then had a debate on, both in Parliament and with the wider public. But I'm very pleased that he's committed to publishing that roadmap, and particularly pleased that the first thing that will open will be schools, because I think that's where we're seeing the most damage being done to the futures of our young people. But even the roadmap for schools is quite loose. The Prime Minister has said March the 8th is when they could begin to reopen. And the FT reported this week it's going to happen in stages with primary schools first, then exam year schools, and then everybody after that. There is a possibility that secondary school pupils might not be back after the Easter break. Does that feel too long to you? 
We've been very clear. We want this plan tied not to dates, actually, but to milestones. So the reason for March the 8th is that it's not an arbitrary date. It's connected very clearly to the rollout of the vaccine. So the first four groups get done by the 15th of February. It takes between two and three weeks for the full benefit of that first dose to kick in. That's the starting point. And as the vaccine rollout accelerates and you are reducing the risk of people dying from COVID or being hospitalised and putting pressure on the NHS, you want to reopen as fast as you can, but commensurate with the reduction in the risks that are coming from the rollout of that vaccine programme. And that's really what we want the plan to look like when it's published on the 22nd of February. Because lots of people I've spoken to in Whitehall essentially say that the decision about how to reopen is a political one more than a medical one because it is about risk that you can look at the data on deaths, you can look at the data on infections, but ultimately it's going to come down to how much risk the prime minister and the government are willing to take with the virus spreading around the economy. You know, where do you think the acceptable level of risks for daily deaths is, for example? That's part of the reason why I want to debate, because it's something that society is going to have to settle on. But I mean, the chief medical officer said that every year, in a normal year, we get between seven and 20,000 people a year die from seasonal flu. Now, we do what we can to protect people. We have a, an annual vaccination programme. But we don't shut down the economy and shut down people meeting with each other. Now, even when we vaccinated everybody, there is still going to be some risk and some people dying from COVID, and some people being hospitalised with it. And as a society, we've got to settle on where do we think that balance is. And I think that's why we want the debate. It's a debate for MPs and politicians to take the decisions, but it should be informed by input from the public, from wider society. For myself, I think once you've vaccinated certainly the top nine groups, and you've reduced 99% of the risk of death and you reduce the level of hospitalisation by 80%, you'd struggle to make an argument for having any restrictions in place at all. But look, I may be wrong. So I, I want people to engage in that debate. So according to Public Health England, on average, there's about 17,000 people die from the flu annually in England. You know, do you think that's the kind of level we need to be looking at to get back to a normal society while living with COVID? Or should it be lower than that? That's... I suppose, a good benchmark in the sense that that's what we currently live with and what we currently appear to be comfortable with as a proposition. But I think life has risk in it and it's about balancing risks and looking at the costs and the benefits. And we've seen that locking down the economy has massive costs. We hear every day about the damage to young people's education and life chances. And many young people are going to be living with the consequences of the year of school that they've missed for the rest of their lives. And that's going to have not just an economic impact on them, but it's going to have an impact on their health. And we are going to see over the next few years, massive impacts on the economy and on the public finances. And that won't just have an economic impact. We know that will have a negative impact on people's health and well-being. So it's about balancing these things. This gradual plan that's being talked about, some people are saying that, well, you get schools back in March, but you're not going to get shops till April, and then it could even be till May until pubs and restaurants open. Does that feel so, again, as if it's too long of a time frame? because you're saying once you've reduced that risk for the people who are most likely of dying from COVID, then you should move quite quickly to get things going again? 
Well, I think to some extent, it's going to depend on the rollout of the vaccine. And if we get the first nine groups, you will get the second doses for the first four groups and the first doses for the remaining groups. You'll get those done by the end of May, beginning of June. But my ambition, and I think it's the government's ambition, is actually to go faster than that. And if we can get those top nine groups done faster and protect people faster, then clearly you could reduce restrictions more quickly. Now, once we get to the summer, Matt Hancock has promised a great British summer ahead with the idea that things can get back to normal. But we know they're not going to be quite back to normal, that, you know, Glastonbury's being cancelled, the borders have been closed of this year. So it feels as if we're going to be back to more something akin to last summer, where you still had the rule of six, you still had to wear masks on public transport. What's your view on that? Do you think we can live with that? In terms of what happens domestically in the UK, I think there's two things. The advantage of the government setting out a plan that's got some sensible milestones in it connected with the vaccine rollout is that should hopefully give businesses the confidence to look ahead later this year and perhaps not cancel things and perhaps keep the opportunity to have things happen so that we can see that economic prosperity later in the year. In terms of what you were just saying about restrictions, I mean, I don't know. Listening to all the science all of the information that's available about the virus. I don't really understand once you vaccinated the top nine groups, why you would need to have any restrictions in at all. The government might still issue guidance to people about how people might want to think about conducting themselves to protect themselves. But I don't really see why you would need laws in place. But again, that's something that we should debate. One thing I would just say on sort of getting back to normal, which is a question I asked in Parliament this week, of the Home Secretary on the travel situation, where we've said we're reducing travel from certain countries and introducing a very strict quarantine to stop a variant of the virus coming into Britain that might be not susceptible to control by the vaccine. That risk is not going to go away ever. And the question I've got for the government, which I don't think I've got a very clear answer on, is how long do those controls have to stay in place? Because in a normal year, about 100 million people travel to Britain. And clearly, those sorts of questions are going to have to be answered to understand where our aviation sector, how open Britain's going to be as an economy going forward. And I don't know the answer to that question yet. And I'm waiting to hear a clear answer from the government. So just on that point about saying that once the most vulnerable have been vaccinated and you wouldn't be sure of the need for having any restrictions in place after that, handily you have an opportunity in Parliament to vote on that because the Coronavirus Act is due for voting and I believe all the clauses within that automatically sunset at the end of March. So would it be your feeling that within your group people would not vote for that again once the most vulnerable have been vaccinated and once you've deduce the risk is in a good enough place to relax all restrictions? Well, there's two things there. Of course, all the restrictions that we're currently living under, of course, haven't been introduced under the Coronavirus Act. They've used the Public Health Act. But you're absolutely right. At the end of March, the current rules expire and the government's going to have to come forward with a new set of restrictions. There will need to be restrictions, I think, for some period after the end of March, because we won't have vaccinated everybody at that point. The question is, what level of restrictions and for how long. And that is going to be a debate that we're going to have in Parliament. And it is going to be a decision ultimately for members of Parliament. And I want to look at the best science, where we are with the vaccine rollout, 
and where the balance of risk lies. And I think that's what my parliamentary colleagues will want to do as well. Now, there has been some criticism of the COVID recovery group because obviously we hit that 100,000 milestone we mentioned this week. And some people are saying that we rushed out of the lockdown in November. We shouldn't have had the Christmas bubbles. The fact that 60,000 of those deaths happened since November are linked to that situation. Do you think there's any sense that the CRG's lobbying to ease restrictions led us into this situation? Because you are a very influential group and the Prime Minister does listen to what you guys say. Well, look, let me take this one head on. If I go back to November, when we were having the debate about the second lockdown, my argument at the time was about the government being open and frank with us about the data And I think at that time, we weren't seeing that level of transparency about the data. And I'll take your listeners back to that weekend we had where it looked like the Prime Minister was bounced that Friday, Saturday into that lockdown. Information was leaked to political journalists about the state of the health service, for example. And there were scary slides produced suggesting that the NHS was going to be overwhelmed within a a few weeks. But when the Prime Minister had his press conference on the Saturday, no such information was published, and the government couldn't stand any of it up. And I said in Parliament at the time, for me, if the government had been able to substantiate those concerns about the health service, that would have weighed very heavily for me. And I may well have supported that second lockdown. But I don't think the government did bring that information forward at the time. And that's why I didn't support the second lockdown. The third one, the one we're in at the moment, I didn't oppose it because I did think the new variant, its increased transmissibility and the pressure on the health service at that point was credible and had been well argued. I've always been driven, I think, by the evidence and challenging the government to bring forward the arguments and be as open with Parliament as possible about the data on which these decisions are being taken. And I don't think the government has always been as transparent as it could have been. And that's really what we've been asking for. But when you look at the evidence we've seen, you know, the dreadful scenes from intensive care units over recent weeks and the fact that the NHS has become close to overwhelmed in some part during the third lockdown, doesn't that suggest that back in November, when obviously things were starting to take a turn for the worse and the new variant was starting to spread, although we weren't aware of it yet, we should have stayed locked down. And even if the government didn't publish the data, maybe you should have trusted the prime minister on that. That assumes, of course, there are no costs for lockdowns because in the first lockdown, perfectly understandably, because we had such little data, we effectively shut down the NHS in advance and we cancelled a huge number of operations. We cancelled screenings for serious diseases. We did effectively scare people away from attending accident and emergency. The government's own analysis has concluded that the impact of the first lockdown in terms of you know, in the jargon, quality-adjusted life years, years that people have in good health, will have been bigger than the number of lives saved from COVID. So I think you do have to be careful to look at the balance here between what are you achieving from a lockdown? And clearly there are things you achieve from a lockdown, but you do also have to look at the costs. And it's not unreasonable to ask the government to bring forward the information on both sides of that equation, imperfect though that information will be, to ask members of parliament to take a balanced judgment about what the right steps to take are. That's frankly all we've ever argued for. 
And I think the government's got better at sharing that information than it has been in the past. And I think it's right for members of parliament to continue asking these questions, because I think we owe it to our constituents as we take these decisions that have such tremendous impacts on lives and livelihoods and future prospects for both. And finally, given the fact that there are these new variants and that that risk level is still going to stay there, do you think this should be the last coronavirus lockdown? Because we know Prime Minister Boris Johnson wants it to be, but he hasn't left out the possibility that we could find ourselves in another bad situation if new variants pop up. Well, I do think the vaccination position does change the calculation, because clearly if you are protecting people from a vaccine, you shouldn't ever need to have a lockdown again. The risk, of course, that you correctly flag is that if you were to have uh, variants of the virus, and of course you're always going to have variants, that's what viruses do, they mutate, you need to make sure that the vaccine stays in lockstep with the mutations in the virus to make sure we can always defeat it. One of the things we're going to have to learn to live with, as the chief scientific advisor has said, is that COVID's going to be with us forever. We're going to have to have a set of protective measures through the vaccination strategy, like we do with flu, Every year, we're going to have to keep on top of how the virus is mutating. We're going to have to keep our vaccination strategy up to date. We may well have to have annual vaccinations. We don't yet know that. And we're going to have to keep alert and make sure that we can continue to defeat the virus through vaccination, because the cost of trying to defeat it through lockdowns is absolutely enormous. And I don't think that should be the first tool that we reach for. I think the vaccination is the much better tool, but we're going to have to keep that being worked on to make sure that it's continuing to protect us in the years to come. Mark Harper, thank you very much. Thank you. Beyond coronavirus, Boris Johnson's other big worry is the future of the United Kingdom. With support for Scottish independence continuing to rise, the SNP set out its timetable for achieving succession from the UK, even if Westminster continues to say no. This so-called Plan B has raised some eyebrows. The Prime Minister visited Scotland as part of his mission to show how the Union has benefited the whole country's coronavirus response, but he was sharply criticised by Nicola Sturgeon for saying it was maybe not essential travel. Don't travel unless it is really essential. Work from home if you possibly can. And that has to apply to all of us. Now, people like me and Boris Johnson have to be in work for reasons that I think most people understand. But we don't have to travel across the UK uh, as part of that. Is that really essential right now? Because we have a duty to lead by example. Well, Mew Dickey, welcome back to the podcast. Aside from this slightly odd criticism, because the Prime Minister has been going to Wales, he's been going across England, but he seems to have taken particular exception of going to Scotland. Just give us the overall picture about why we're talking about this right now. The reason we're talking about it more actively now than we might be otherwise is that Scottish opinion throughout the pandemic has shifted. And we now have, for the first time, polls suggesting over a sustained period that if there was a second independence referendum, that Scottish voters would back leaving the UK. And that's quite a significant moment and unsurprisingly has got supporters of independence, most notably the Scottish National Party, excited about the prospect. And Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the party and the First Minister of Scotland, has been under increasing pressure from members of her party to show that she is taking this opportunity and moving towards getting another chance at breaking away from the United Kingdom. 
Nicola McEwen from Edinburgh University's Constitutional Centre. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. What do you make of this push towards independence at this exact moment? Because obviously we've got the Holyrood elections coming up in May. If they go ahead, still a slight question mark over that due to coronavirus. But there's one way of looking at this push, which is to say it's about throwing red meat to SNP grassroots supporters who are getting a bit restless. Well, I think there's certainly some impatience among some members of the party, recognising that the opinion polls are showing support for independence at a more sustained level than it has ever been. And so I suppose there is a sense in which that there is an opportunity there and a fear that that might be missed. But I think it's much more about politics than it is about matters of law. And this is also to try to assert to the UK government that this issue doesn't go away if you continue to say no to the request to transfer the authority to hold an independence referendum on similar terms to the one in 2014. So the plan you essentially is the SNP want to win a majority in May's Holyrood elections. And first of all, do you think that's going to happen? And if they win that majority, they would then make this so-called Section 30 request to Westminster to have another independence referendum. And I think it's almost certain that if they do that, Boris Johnson will just say no. Yes. So the SNP is saying if there's a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament, again, after the elections in May, obviously they would like to have a majority on their own account. And the polls suggest that that is not unlikely. Then they will indeed try to legislate for a referendum. And if Boris Johnson continues to refuse to give what's called a Section 30 notice, it's basically approval under devolution law for the Scottish Parliament to go ahead and legislate for an election. If he refuses, then they'll try to do it anyway and basically challenge the UK government to take them to court. So at this point, it's still very much within the framework of UK devolution law that Nicola Sturgeon is trying to work. But what she hopes is that this will at the least focus attention on UK refusal to let Scotland decide its own constitutional future when it wants to. Or perhaps if the courts were to decide that it is possible for Hollywood to organise a a referendum, that it will make it more difficult for the UK government to stop it. Now, as part of this plan B, Nicola, how exactly would that process work? Because really, if the SNP goes down this path, you're setting it up for a legal clash as opposed to a political one. I don't think there's any prospect at all of the Scottish government trying to pursue a referendum that's outside the framework of the law. But in the past, when all of these process issues were debated, the Scottish government never conceded that they couldn't hold a referendum that was in the framework of the devolution settlement as it stands. But what they did concede was they couldn't hold it with the same clarity of question as they used the last time. And they wanted a consensual process. And that is absolutely still what they want. And so the claim is that they will try to find a way within the framework of the law to legislate anyway. Mm. But I still think this is all about raising the issue as a political issue and placing pressure on the Prime Minister. And as long as these debates are about process and about who has the right to determine Scotland's future, whether it is a matter for the people of Scotland to decide or whether it is a matter for the Prime Minister to decide, then framing it in that way absolutely plays into the hands of the SNP in the run-up to the elections because 
there are many more people who would believe it was for the people of Scotland to decide on the issue of independence than probably support independence itself. So that idea that it's for the people to decide is a very powerful one. And that suits the SNP ahead of the election, certainly. Of course, that doesn't take away from the fact that they would still have a real issue as to how you do that. But I think this is all about trying to build support for independence. It's historically very strong, but perhaps not yet at the point that it might be seen as being the settled will of the people of Scotland. But if it continues to rise, then it becomes more and more difficult for Boris Johnson or any other UK leader to say, well, no, I'm sorry, we're just going to ignore that. So I think ultimately the union has to survive on consent. Well, Boris Johnson tackled this point during his visit to Scotland this week, and this is what he told journalists. I don't think that the right thing to do uh, is to talk endlessly about another referendum when I think what the people of the country want, and I think that the people of Scotland want uh, in particular, is for us to uh, fight this pandemic. I don't see the advantage of uh, getting lost in a pointless constitutional wrangling when, after all, we had a referendum not so very long ago. Well, Mia, on this point, what options does the Prime Minister have here? Because speaking to unionists this week, people who are quite senior in the effort to keep Scotland within the UK, their hope is that they can just keep saying no, but they are aware there is a tipping point that sort of Nicola was referring to there, that if you keep saying no and there is continued proven evidence that Scotland does want a referendum, there does become a point. And I was told that it's about when you get consistent polls showing 60% support of independence, that's when it becomes counterproductive. So where do you think it's going to head next in terms of the Westminster thinking? <laughs> well, I suppose, I think like, Many people observing the UK constitution at the moment through a Scottish frame, I wonder just how serious the UK political establishment is about preserving union, because it seems to me that there is now a very, very real prospect that at some point, not in the next year, not in the next two years, perhaps not in the next five or even 10 years, but at some point Scotland will become independent. And if that is something you oppose, you would expect a kind of level of attention and strategic thinking, which, frankly, we haven't seen from Westminster. Mm. There's obviously a lot of difference about what could be done. There is one school of thought that suggests the UK needs fairly fundamental reform, that what we need is a new way of the different constituent nations of the UK speaking with each other. For example, changing the House of Lords into a, a Senate of the Regions, as Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister, has suggested. Other people think it's a matter of giving Scotland more autonomy, but it feels to me that something needs to be done and waiting until 60% of Scots want to go is probably too late. And the impression of just saying no is, as Nicola outlined, I think, very risky. For a lot of pro-union Scots, part of the appeal of the union is that it's a free and voluntary one. In Scotland, people like to have a sense that uh, it's not a conquered nation, it's a nation that freely joined, even if it was just a few a corrupt lords who actually made the decision, but it freely joined the union with England three centuries ago. And if the sense is that it's not actually a voluntary union grows, then I would think that would be the end of it. I thought it was interesting, the clip that you played of the Prime Minister talking about why we shouldn't talk endlessly about the union. And I think it's only apt to point out that the Conservatives have talked rather a lot about the union and about independence. And that's worked very well for them electorally. They have become 
undisputably the party of union squeezing out, in a sense, the Labour Party who have struggled to engage with the constitutional issue. And so the rejection of an independence referendum, the calculation is that will work very well for the Conservatives to garner support among those who don't want independence. And finally, Muir, just back onto the politics of Hollywood for a moment. The Scottish Labour Party, since we last spoke, have ousted their leader, Richard Leonard, who had a pretty unimpressive run leading the party there. And has currently got a contest underway between Anna Sawa and Monica Lennon. What's your view on how that might change or not change the dynamic? I think whoever wins, it's going to be very difficult to make Labour seem very relevant before the elections. But if they do any better than last time, which was pretty disastrous, then uh, <laughs> you know maybe, maybe we could be talking about Labour coming back. The polls at the moment suggest that the SNP is going to romp it. But then the SNP has its own troubles. Nicola Sturgeon is locked in a feud with her predecessor, Alex Salmond, who's going to be appearing in front of a Scottish parliamentary committee next month and has accused her of misleading parliament. So there are strains on SNP. We haven't seen them affecting it too much in the polls so far, but who knows what will happen next month. And I think the opposition parties will be desperately hoping that something happens to at least slow down the SNP bandwagon. And finally, Nicola, when you look at this whole debate and the whole context of this, do you think the prospect of an independence referendum, another one, is likely or not before the next UK general election in 2024? Oh, that's a hard one. I always try and avoid uh, predictions in, in, <laughs> in politics, but probably. Uh, that's about as far as I would go. I always thought the issue was not settled in 2014 because it was clear enough to be accepted, but close enough to ensure that the argument Continued, And I do think that the Brexit referendum changed the circumstances of the debate. It changed the nature of the debate entirely. And so I think continuing to say, no, we're not going to allow it, isn't going to make the issue go away. So I think it will probably happen, but that's about as far uh, as I am willing to go. Probably best to keep it at that point. <laughs> Muir and Nicola, thank you for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You can find us through all your favourite places, Apple, Spotify, Google, your smart speaker. You can receive episodes as soon as they're released. If you're feeling generous, then please leave us a positive rating or some nice feedback. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer was Breen Turner and the editor Cheryl Brumley. Until next time, thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.